Chapter 4, Part C of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 4, Part C. In the socialistic orgy of nationalizing business, I was fortunate. Consolidated pemmican and allied concentrates was left in the hands of private initiative. Better than that, it had not been tied down and made helpless by the multiplicity of regulations hampering the few types of endeavor remaining nominally free of regimenting bureaucracy. Opportunity, long prepared for and not, I trust, undeserved, was before me. In the past to which our country had come, it seemed to me I could be of most service, supplying our armed forces with field rations. Such an unselfish and patriotic desire one would think easy of realization, as I so innocently did, and I immediately began interviewing numberless officers of the quartermaster's department to further this worthy aim. I certainly believe every corporation must have its rules, otherwise executives would be besieged all day by time-wasters. The United States government is surely a corporation, as I always used to say in advocating election of a business administration, and standard procedures and regulations are essential. Still, there ought to be a limit to the number and length of questionnaires to fill out, and the number of underlings to interview before a serious businessman can get to see a responsible official. After making three fruitless trips to Washington, and getting exhaustively familiar with countless tantalizing waiting rooms, I became impatient. The man I needed to see was a Brigadier General Thario, but after wasting valuable days and hours I was no nearer reaching him than in the beginning. I had filled out the necessary forms and stated the nature of my business so often, I began to be alarmed lest my hand refuse to write anything else, and I be condemned for the rest of my life to repeat the idiotic phrases called for in the blank spaces. I am afraid I must have raised my voice in expressing my exasperation to the young lady who acted as receptionist and barrier. At any rate, she looked startled, and I think pressed a button on her desk. A pink-faced, white-mustached gentleman came hastily through the door behind her. The jacket of his uniform fitted snugly at the waist, and his bald head was sunburnt and shiny. "'What's this? What's this going on here?' I saw the single star on his shoulder straps and ventured. "'General Thario?' He hit his white mustache with a forefinger pink as his cheeks. "'Yes, yes, yes, but she must have an appointment to speak to me. That's the rule, you know.' must have an appointment. He appeared extremely nervous and harassed, his eyes darting back to the refuge of his office, but he was evidently held to the spot by whatever distress animated his receptionist. General Thario, I persisted firmly, I quite appreciate your viewpoint, but I have been trying for days to get such an appointment with you on a matter of vital concern, and I have been put off every time by what I can only describe as red tape. I'm sorry to say so, General Thario, but I must repeat, red tape. He looked more worried than before, and his eyes ranged over the room for some escape. No, just how you feel, he muttered. No, just how you feel. Horrible stuff. Swaddled in it here. Sample swaddled in it. Strangled. He cleared his throat as though to disembarrass it of a garrote. <clears throat> but, uh, hang it, mister. 
Wiener, Albert Wiener, President of Consolidated Pemmican and Allied Concentrates, Incorporated. Well, you know, Mr. Wiener, man your position. Appreciate absolute necessity, certain amount of routine. Keep the cranks out, otherwise swarming with them, simply swarming. Wartime precautions. Must excuse me now, terribly rushed, glad to have met. Swallowing the rest of the sentence and putting his hand over his mouth, lest he should inadvertently regurgitate it, he started for his office. General Thario, I pleaded, a moment. Consider our positions reversed. I have long since established my identity, my responsibility. I want nothing for myself. I am here doing a patriotic duty. Surely enough of the routine you mention has been complied with to permit me to speak to you for five or ten minutes. Do for one moment, as I say, General, and put yourself in my place. Think of the discouragement you as a citizen would feel to be hampered, perhaps more than is necessary. He took his hand down from his mouth and looked at me out of blue eyes so pale as to be almost colorless. But hang it, you know, Mr. Weiner, Highly irregular. Sympathize completely, but consider. Don't like being put in such a position. Why don't you come back in the morning? General, I urged, flushed with victory, give me ten minutes now. He collapsed. Know just how you feel. Wanted to be out in the field myself. No desk soldier. A lot of nonsense, if you ask me. Come in. Come in. In his office, I explained the sort of contract I was anxious to secure and assured him of my ability to fulfill its terms. But I could see his mind was not intent upon the specifications for field rations. Looking up occasionally from a dejected study of his knees, he kept inquiring in elliptical, practically verbless questions how many men my plant employed, whether I had a satisfactory manager, and if a knowledge of chemistry was essential to the manufacture of concentrates, evading or discussing in the vaguest terms the actual business in hand. However, he seemed very friendly and affable toward me personally, once the chill air of the waiting room had been left behind and as Button Fleas had advised me insistently to entertain without regard to expense any officials with whom I came in contact, I thought it politic to invite him to dinner. He demurred at first, but at length accepted, instructing his secretary to phone his wife not to expect him home early. I suggested Mrs. Thario join us, but he shook his head, muttering, "'No place for women, Mr. Weiner. No place for women.' Whether this referred to Washington, or the restaurant where we were going, or to his life largely, was not clear. Wartime Washington was in its usual chaotic turmoil, and it was impossible to get a taxi, so we had to walk. But the general did not seem at all averse to the exercise. It seemed to me he rather enjoyed returning the salutes with the greatest punctilio and flourish. On our way we came to one of the capital's most famous taverns, and I thought I detected a hesitancy in his stride. Now, I am not a drinking man myself. I limit my imbibing to an occasional glass of beer on account of the yeast it contains which I consider beneficial. I hope, however, I am no prig or puritan, and so I asked casually if he would care to stop in for an appetizer. Well, now you mention it, Mr. Weiner, huh? <clears throat> Fact is... Don't mind if I do. While I confined myself to my medicinal beverage, the general conducted a most remarkable raid on the bar. As I have hinted, he was in demeanor a mild-appearing, if not indeed a timid man. 
in the course of an hour's conversation no word of profanity such as is affected by many military men had crossed his lips the framed photograph of his wife and daughters on his desk and his respectful references to women indicated he was not the type of soldier who lusts for rapine but seated before that dull mahogany bar whatever inhibitions whatever conventional shackles whatever self-denials and repressions had been inculcated fell from him swiftly and completely he barked his orders at the bartender who seemed to know him very well as though he were addressing a parade formation of badly disciplined troops not only did general thario drink enormously but he broke all the rules i had ever heard laid down about drinking he began with a small squat glass which i believe is called an old-fashioned glass containing half cognac and half rye whiskey he followed this with a tall tumbler twelve full ounces none of your right ounce thimbles not trifled with of champagne into which the bartender upon his instructions and under his critical eye poured two jiggers of tropical rum then he wiped his lips with a handkerchief pulled from his sleeve and began with a serious air on a combination of benedictine and tequila the more he imbibed the longer more complete and more coherent his sentences became he dropped his harassed air his abdomen receded his chest expanded bringing to my notice for the first time the rows of ribbons which confirmed his earlier assertion that he was not a desk soldier he was sipping curacao liberally laced with applejack when he suggested we have our dinner sent in rather than leave this comfortable spot the fact of the matter is mr weiner i'm going to call you albert if you don't mind i said i didn't mind with all the heartiness at my command the fact of the matter is albert i have devoted my unfortunate life to two arts the military and the potatory as you may have noticed most of the miserable creatures on the wrong side of a bar adopt one of two reprehensible courses either they treat drinking as though the aim of blending liquids were to imitate some french chef's fiddle-faddle a dash of bitters a squirt of orange an olive cherry or onion wrenched from its proper place in the salad bowl a twist of lemon peel sprig of mint or lump of sugar and an eye-dropper full of whiskey or else they embrace the opposite extreme of vulgarity and gulp whatever rock gut is thrust at them to addle their undiscerning brains and atrophy their undiscriminating palates ah their practice is foreign to my nature and philosophy i believe the happiest combinations of liquors are simple ones containing no more than two ingredients each of which should be noble that is to say drinkable in its own right he raised his fresh glass containing brandy and arrack no doubt you have observed a catholicity in my taste i range through the whole gamut from usquebaugh to saki though during the present conflict for obvious patriotic reasons i cross vodka from my list while as a man born south of the mason dixon line sir i leave gin to negras i must say though somewhat startled by his manner of imbibing i was inclined to like general thario but i was impatient to discuss the matter of a contract for consolidated pemmican every time i attempted to bring the subject round to it he waved me grandly aside dinner he confirmed when the waiters brought in their trays yes no drink is complete without a little bit of the right food to garnish it 
eating in moderation I approve of. But mark my words, Albert, the man who takes a meal on an empty stomach is digging his grave with his teeth. If he would not talk business, I could only hope his amiability would carry over till I saw him again in his office tomorrow. I settled down as far as I could simply to enjoy his company. You may have been surprised at my referring to my life as unfortunate, Albert, but it is a judicious adjective. Vilely unfortunate. I come of a military family, you know. You will find footnotes mentioning the Tharios in the history of every war this country has had. He finished what was in his glass. My misfortunes, like Tristram's shandies, began before my birth, and in the same way, exactly the same way. My father was a scholar and a gentleman who dreamed his life away over the campaigns of the great captains instead of attempting to become a great captain himself. I do not condemn him for this. The organization of the army is such as to encourage impracticality and inadvertence, but the consequences were unfortunate for me. He named me after his favorite heroes. Stuart, Hannibal, Ireton, Thario, and so aloof was he from the vulgarities of everyday life that it was not until my monogram was ordered painted upon my first piece of luggage that the unfortunate combination of my initials was noted. Hannibal and Ireton, promptly suppressed in the interests of decency, nevertheless at West Point my surname was twisted by fellow classmates into Lothario, giving it a connotation quite foreign to my nature. I lived down both vexations only to encounter a third. Though Ireton remained successfully concealed, the Hannibal leaked out, and when during the World War I had the misfortune to lead a company which was decimated, his hand strayed to the ribbons on his chest, behind my back the enlisted men called me Cannibal Thario. He began discussing another drink. Of one thing I'm resolved. My son shall not suffer as I have suffered. I did not send him to West Point so he might win decorations on the field of valor and then be shunted off to sit behind an unsoldierly desk. I broke with tradition when I kept him from a military career quite on purpose, just as I was thinking of his welfare and not some silly foible of my own when I called him by the simplest name I could find. "'What is your son's name?' I was constrained to ask. "'George,' he answered proudly. "'George Thario. "'There is no nickname for George, as far as I know.' "'And he's not in the army now?' I queried, more in politeness than interest. "'No, and I don't intend he shall be.' The general's pink face grew pinker with his vehemence. Albert, there are plenty of dunderheads and duffers like me in the country who are good for nothing better than cannon fodder. Let them go and be killed. I'm willing enough. Only an idiotic general staff has booted me into the quartermaster corps, for which I am no more fitted than to run an academy for lady marines. But I'm not willing for a fine, sensitive boy, a talented musician like George, to suffer the harsh brutalities of a training camp and battlefield. The draft, I began tentatively. If George had a civilian position, 
in an essential industry, say one holding a contract with the army for badly needed field rations. I should like to meet your son, I said. I have been looking around for some time for a reliable manager. George might consider it. General Thario squinted his glass against the light. I'll have him stop by your hotel tomorrow. The little radio behind the bar, which had been mumbling to itself for hours, spoke loudly. We interrupt this program to bring you a news flash. Iyer has declared war on the Soviet Union. I repeat, war has been declared on the Union of Soviet Republics by Iyer. Keep tuned to this station for further details. We return you now to our regular program. There was an absent pattering of applause, and General Thario stood up gravely, glass in hand. Gallant little liar! Or, if I may be permitted once, the indulgence of using the good old name we know and love so well. Brave old Ireland! When the world was at war, despite every provocation, she stayed peaceful. Now that the world is disgracefully pacific, and you have all heard foreign ministers unanimously declaring their countries neutral, so fast did they rush to the microphones that they were still panting when they went on the air. When the whole world was cautious, Ireland, true to her traditions, joined the just cause. Gentlemen, I give you our fighting ally, R. Departing from his usual custom, he drank the toast in one gulp, but no one else in the room paid any attention. I considered this lack of enthusiasm for a courageous gesture quite unworthy, and meditated for a moment on the insensitivity into which our people seemed to have sunk. As the evening went on, the general grew more and more affable, and, if possible, less and less reticent. He had, he assured me, been the constant victim either of men or of circumstances. At the military academy he had trained for the cavalry, only to find himself assigned to the tank corps. He had reconciled himself, pursued his duties with zeal, and was shunted off to the infantry, where, swallowing chagrin, he had led his men bravely into a crossfire from machine guns. For this he got innumerable decorations, and a transfer to the quartermaster's department. His marriage to the daughter of an influential politician should have assured peacetime promotion, but the nuptials coincided with an election depriving the family's party of power. Now another war had come, and he was a mere brigadier pigeonholed in an unimportant office, with juniors broadly hinting at his retirement, while classmates were leading divisions and even army corps to glorious victory on the field of battle. At least, they would have been leading them to glorious victory if there had been any action at all. Invade, insisted General Thario, becoming sufficiently stirred by his fervor to lapse into sober incoherence. Invade them before they invade us. Aircraft out. Gentlemen's agreement. Quite understand. Well, landing barges. Barren sea. Strike south. Shuttle transports. Drive left wing. Trans-Siberian. Hold an operation by right and center. ABC. No doubt it was a pity he was deprived of the opportunity to try these tactics. 
I was one of the few who had not become a military theoretician upon the outbreak of the war, but to my lay mind his plan sounded feasible. Nevertheless, I was more interested in the possible contract for food concentrates than in any strategy, no matter how brilliant. I'm afraid I showed my boredom, for the general abruptly declared it was time to go home. End of chapter 4, part C